So we are going to be jumping back into our study of the gospel uh, according to John this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at the beginning verses of chapter 7. Verses 1 through 31. So let me read before we jump in. As this Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Uh, And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has, uh, has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but it is uh, he, his who sent me. Uh, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, Uh, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man whole, uh, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, uh, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when, this, uh, when the Christ appears, no one will know, whether, uh, he c- know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come uh, of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him uh, you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him 
because this hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man uh, has done? Uh, you know what, as I read that this is morning, I'm just overcome once again with the depth and the fullness and the, com- uh, the vastness of the Word of God. And, you know, and I'm thinking about the sermon that I prepared, and it certainly is based upon this particular passage, but there's all kinds of fiats and innuances and such things that... Uh, you know, enter into this picture. There's, yeah, I could, I could, I'm serious. I could probably preach ten sermons from the, those past the passages we just read very easily. So I guess the sense I'm kind of apologizing that I'm going to hit on some of the high points and we're going to miss some of the really golden jewels or precious jewels that are in this particular text. And it's just, I don't know about you, but every time I read the Word of God, the depth of it just amazes me. The deeper you go, the deeper there is to go, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so anyway, we're going to give it a shot this morning. Uh, I just want to take note, you know, as we, we study, just, we've just finished studying uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the Bread of Life discourse. Uh, that followed after that. Uh, and, and I just want to remind us that, that the, the conclusion that many of those people that, that heard Jesus t- teaching and, and speaking and preaching, that their conclusion was this, uh, that, that what he said was very difficult. And as we read back in John chapter 6, verse 66, that afterward many uh, of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I mean, sometimes I think that we have, all have this idea that if we had just been there, it would have been a lot easier to believe. We saw Jesus, we listened to Jesus, uh, and, and all that sort of thing. And I just want to remind us this morning that a lot of what Jesus said was difficult stuff. It was hard for people to hear then. It's hard for people to hear now. It's hard for you and I to hear today. But it is nonetheless the Word of God. And we need to take it in. We need to feed on it. What takes place here this morning shouldn't be something that is short-lasting. But it's my hope that, that all of us will be considering and rehashing the things that we speak about this morning as this week progresses. It's so easy for us to walk out of the church door on Sunday morning with the idea that, you know, that was a special worship service. I got a lot out of it and this, that, and the other. And, and very, very often you could probably have a conversation with someone the, the day after, or maybe even late in the afternoon on Sunday, and, and, and they might ask you, well, what was the sermon on this morning? And you're going, well, it was really good. You know, I learned a lot and this, that, and the other, uh, but I can't remember exactly what it was. <laughs> I mean, it just it speaks to us. And let me just tell you, Lori and I are just as guilty of this as other people. You know, years ago, uh, I'm not sure I'd even started seminary yet or whatever, but we went, we used to live in Crystal River. We went to Publix one morning and we bought groceries and we're leaving. And 
and, and, and the bag boy who bagged our groceries up was also a member of the same church we were. And he said to us, he, I, I, I had to work on Sunday or something. There was some reason why I couldn't be in church on Sunday. And he said, well, what was, it, what was the sermon about? And, and we're looking at each other and we're going, well, we know it was really good. It really was maybe one of the best sermons we ever heard preached and this, that, and the other. And, and we, we were talking with this kid, walking to the car, just trying to dig it out of our mind, out of our heart. What had, we had actually heard that week that was so good and so precious and the sad thing about it is is we couldn't even do that so I just want to challenge us with the idea that what takes place here this morning should not be the end of what is taking place now it should be the very beginning of the rest of the week so I would encourage all of you to read back through this particular passage because let me tell you the best that I can do is not all that great. There's just so much stuff here. What Jesus spoke, what Jesus taught, was difficult. Not easy stuff. The reason for that being is we have this simple nature that everything that comes into our mind and our heart is sifted through. There is a battle going on within each one of us. And that is the renewed spirit battling to overcome the old self. And the old self does not want to die. It is fighting tooth and nail to regain our hearts, to control us, to guide us and direct us in everything that we do and we say. We need to learn, and I'm not sure exactly how to teach us to do that, to, to humbly rely more and more and more on the Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us. I touched on this last week, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail on it, but, but really there is today an air in, uh, in the church in, in many areas of this easy believism. That salvation really doesn't cost us a lot. That Jesus is offered it freely and all we have to do is accept it and, and that sort of thing. But that is, I want to say this morning in strong words, is a lie from the pit of hell. I mean, it just is. Real faith is a struggle. Real faith is a battle. Real faith requires dying to the old and living more and more to the new. And it's something that we will all experience until the time that we pass from this world and we come face to face with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is a difficult fight. It is a hard fight. That we are called to that fight nonetheless, every single one of us. With that said, it's just common belief today that, that, it, that it's common for people to make a spur of the moment profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And once we utter those words, then we have truly come to faith in Christ I'm very cautious about encouraging people to have that approach to things. 
Now, very often when we present the gospel to people, we tell them all the good things and we leave out all the, the more difficult things. We paint a picture sometimes of, of, of a reality that just doesn't even exist. And I would just challenge us with the idea this morning that we do no one any favor by promoting this idea of easy believism. Why? Why do I say that? Because it's what Jesus says. Not my opinion. It's not what I think. It's not what I believe. It's what Jesus himself says. Hear the words here. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Just a reminder this morning that the things that Jesus said and taught were hard for the human ear to hear and for the heart to receive. It's so easy for us to have this mindset that if I'd only been there, if I'd only seen him do these miracles, if I had only heard these words of God flowing forth directly from his mouth, then it would make it very easy to believe. But what we see here in these, the, the passages we read recently over and over again is people acknowledging that these things that Jesus was saying were very hard. So hard that some people were not willing to accept them and receive them. As a matter of fact, it appears that there was a good many people that fell into that category. Just remember the people that were there at the feeding of the 5,000, they were there and they were rejoicing, you know, and whatever, because Jesus had actually fed them when they were hungry. But the teaching that took place as a result of all of that was far more important. But we read that because these things were hard, that there were many who were leaving. It shouldn't surprise us that even Jesus' own brothers, he was the oldest, that his own brothers couldn't believe the things that he was saying. They were resistant to receiving him as a reality of who he was and what he was about. Can you imagine being one of the brothers of Jesus? Maybe Jesus became the standard that they were all measured by, especially since he was the oldest one. Can you imagine being his brother? All your faults and failures, he and his perfection, But we find here written that, that even his brothers were not believing. 
Well, Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem once again. Now, you may have noticed that we've, we've read that a number of times as we've started particular chapters in this book. And we need to understand that there was a lot of interim that took place between these different feasts. That Jesus always went here for these feasts. He went to every single feast. There were three annual ones that every male was supposed to be at. And he was in attendance of all of those. But there were months that passed in between them sometimes. So what was Jesus doing during those times? Well, he was off in Galilee. It appears as though that was his destination. Typically, once he had been to the feast, he would return back to Galilee. And that's where his more active ministry took place. But here we have Jesus and the disciples once again at one of those feasts. This happened to be the, one, the Feast of the Tabernacles. That was where all the people for seven days, they would, they would erect little huts made out of palm branches and etc. And they would live in those for the whole week of this feast. And the purpose of it was to remind them of their roots, remind them where uh, they came from, remind them of what their fathers, their distant fathers at this point, and, and mothers had endured during all those years in the wilderness, for 40 years in the wilderness. This is in essence how they lived. They were just kind of... They were called by God to do this to remind them so they could have some experience of what took place to bring them to where they were. It was at the beginning of the 15th day of the seventh month, and they did it for seven days. And it was for a number of reasons. One was to remind them of the exodus, but at the same time, it was also one that was designed to cause them to celebrate the provision that God had made for them over that year. It came at the very end of the harvest. In other words, what I'm telling you, if, if we have a, a biblical kind of equivalent of it, it'd be very much like Thanksgiving would be as far as our holidays go. A time of remembering the greatness of God's provision for them uh, through that, that particular year. It would have been a safe thing for Jesus to stay away from Jerusalem at this point. Uh, but he was bound to go. In other words, it wasn't a question of whether Jesus was going to go. Jesus, in fact, had to go. If Jesus had decided to sit out this particular feast, then you and I would not have a Savior. He had to be there. It was of the law. It was commanded that he, being a male, that he be present at this particular feast. But we hear here that his brothers, in kind of a mimicking kind of way, were, you know, pushing him and encouraging him to go. And Jesus came out and said he was not going to go. But I want you to, but then he did go. And, and some people say, well, he lied to him. Now, what I would say to you is this, is, is he just simply refused to go under the pretense that they suggested that he go under. As we said before, Jesus had to go to this feast. If he, if he had opted not to, then you and I would have not have a Savior. Because he would have broken, he would have violated the very word of God that he came to fulfill in 
absolute completeness. You can understand why maybe his brothers were somewhat surprised. You know, I, I think I brought this to light in a number of sermons back, and that is very often. We, just, we, we, we have this picture of, of, of this perfect boy always saying the right thing, always doing the right thing, and growing up into this, this, this perfect man, and we can understand how intimidating it would be for his brothers in particular, you know, very close to him uh, with the same mother uh, and Father is as Jesus had. But at the same time, I think that we need to understand that Jesus' humanness was genuine and real. Now, I really do believe this, that there are ways probably in which Jesus stood out but at the same time, I would say that there are also ways in which Jesus was very much ordinary. Probably far more ordinary than you and I would ever even think of. But it's not what we hear all the time. I mean, Jesus had to be like us. In absolutely every aspect but one. Without sin. His brothers <laughs> were not among the very first who came to faith. But you need to understand that we know that more than likely, they all did come to faith. For instance, we know that his brother James became very, very actively involved. He was one of the, the head leaders uh, with the apostles of the church in Jerusalem. He's the one who authored the gospel or the, uh, the epistle that we call James. Very much one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He's very much spoken of in the book of Acts uh, at the council of Jerusalem. He spoke. So one of the leaders in that. So the point I'm making is this, is even though James and what we're saying here is at the beginning of this more public ministry of Jesus, even his brother James didn't believe, but James, we know for a matter of fact, came to faith. And it wasn't just a little faith that he became actually one of the pillars of the church. But Jesus goes to the feast. And at midweek, he begins to teach in the temple in Jerusalem once again. And the Jews marvel at his learning. Why? Because Jesus had no formal training. Jesus didn't go to seminary. Jesus didn't even go to Bible college. 
Jesus didn't even sit under the teaching of the Pharisees all that much. This should not surprise anyone because if we read uh, in, in the gospel according to Luke, that when he was 12 years old, he went with Joseph and Mary to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts. And then at the end of the week, they left, Mary and Joseph left, thinking that Jesus was with the caravan that they were traveling with. Obviously, they were with friends and family and etc. probably a large number of people. And they didn't even notice he was missing for a time. And then went back and they found Jesus after looking for several days. They found him in the temple. It was probably the first place they should have looked. But it seems like it was the last place that they looked. And they found him there conversing with the teachers. And these teachers were amazed at his learning, at his knowledge. I don't know if you ever thought about this or really considered it much, but the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people outside the church that were very greatly influenced by the teaching of Jesus. Who, by the way, many of whom never even became believers. Mahatma Gandhi is a good example of that. He read all the teachings of Jesus. He thought Jesus was, Jesus was a very, very good and great teacher. He took some of the principles that Jesus taught and applied them to the religion that he practiced. Jesus was not just a teacher, he was the teacher. Sent from God to do many things, but one of those was to teach. And you and I sit under his teaching today. Remember that, G that Peter had recently said after the feeding of the 5,000, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? So we stand here this morning, some of you have sat under my teaching for 27 plus years, and I am flabbergasted. Seriously. You have done something that I know that I could not do. One of the reasons I started seminary was not really, when I first started serving, it was not really because I had felt particularly called by God to be a pastor. I started seminary because I had this insatiable appetite to learn as much as I could. I just wanted to know more, and I felt like I had almost maxed out where I was, that I wasn't really going to learn any more where I was than I had already learned. And it was only later on that I began to believe that Jesus was calling me to become a pastor, teacher. Teacher. 
And let me just say this to you this morning, especially those people that have been here for those 27 plus years. If you do not know Jesus better and your relationship with him has not deepened as you have sat under my teaching, then you have wasted your time. Then I have not done my job. Because my job is to help everyone in this room grow as much as possible in their relationship with Jesus Christ. That is my calling. So if that hasn't happened, then I have utterly failed you, and more importantly, I failed Christ himself. My point here being the job of every true Bible teacher, and that applies to people in this room that are involved and in, engaged in teaching places, is to do many things, but one of those is to shine the spotlight on Jesus, never on his or herself. And that's a hard thing to accomplish. You gotta understand that every time someone's called to teaching preaching, that person is a sinner. Just like everybody else. Just a sinner trying to help other sinners to find bread. That's all we are. Just remember that we've already been told that the Jewish leaders were already seeking to find Jesus, not because they wanted to hear his teaching, but because they wanted to kill him. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not, not only was he breaking the Sabbath when he healed the, the, the crippled man at Bethesda, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. That was the reason for the persecution that Jesus endured. But notice over and over again, people were just astonished at the teaching of Jesus. And, and, and I don't know about you, but very often, you know, I'm amazed when you consider the men that Jesus called to be the, become the apostles. Lowly fishermen. An ill-regarded, not respected tax gatherer. All of the people that most people would have said he never would call. But these men were transformed through their relationship with Jesus Christ. They were just ordinary, common people. Who were 
ultimately absolutely consumed with Christ Jesus. And they were transformed by it. Well, Jesus knew that a lot of he was he was sent for many many reasons, but but one of those was to shed the spotlight on God the Father, not so much Himself, and it's something that we should all remember that that is what our job is. Everyone who teaches, and some of you in this room teach just not maybe to the same level that I do, but you teach. Your job always is to shine the spotlight on Jesus. Always. There's always this sinful nature within us that wants to steal some of that away from him. Now, there's nothing wrong with us wanting to do a good job for him. We should want to do a good job for him. We should be uh, leery, in a sense, of what we are doing when we are teaching on Christ's behalf. And I'm talking about whether you're preaching in front of a congregation or you're sitting down having a conversation with a little child. It's all about Jesus. We fit into the picture, but that's not the primary focal point. Jesus is the center of all of it, and it should always be at the center of every gospel presentation anybody and everybody ever makes. See, we have very often taken the gospel to be all about us. It's all about God saving us. But that is not the heart and soul of it. It is like we talked about last week. It is the worthiness of Christ to receive the honor and glory due him. And we must always remember this. Always, all of us should keep our focus on him. And help other people to focus on him. And the word that is given to us through the Bible. Preach it, teach it, live it. Only people who know the word of God are adequate to teach it. In other words, you have to know it before you can teach other people. It should not be something that people enter into lightly. But at the same time, we understand this, that every single one of us will have opportunities in our life to teach people about Jesus. Sometimes on a larger scale, sometimes on a very, very small scale.
But I want to challenge you this, this morning as we present the gospel to people that, that the, the focus, the ultimate focus, not be on that person, but be on the God who deserves to be worshipped and praised by everyone. Sadly, we live in a day where there's a good bit of teaching within the context of the visible church that is not very well anchored in Scripture. And I spoke a little bit about it last week, and that's what I would call easy believism. Now, people are even, people are, are taught, they're encouraged to believe that the normal thing is for someone to sit down with someone else and that one person to tell them about Jesus and for that person to come to saving faith in him and pray the prayer and that's it. Let me tell you, that happens on occasion, but it's very rare occasions. The coming to faith in Jesus Christ is a struggle and it takes some time. That sinful nature struggling within you to close your ears and harden your heart. And I want to remind us something this morning, and that is this, is that our, we, are, we are dead as sinners. We are dead in our trespasses. Our spirit is dead. It is dead to God. And that the only way anyone will ever come to faith in Jesus Christ is for God to cause that dead person to be spiritually born again. You nor I can save anybody. God has to do it. That whole concept is, is very greatly missing from the gospel that the vast majority of Christians in the church today believe in. The vast majority of Christians, and I'm saying Christians, I'm saying they're believers, I'm just saying they're believers that very clearly are in biblical error. They believe that it's totally, completely up to us, that God doesn't do a single thing. It's just not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus tells us. It's not what the apostles teach us. And let me tell you something. These principles that we call being reformed, they were dear to, to, the, to the Protestant Reformation. These are the things that Luther and Calvin and all these other guys preached and taught and believed and practiced. That is where the root of Protestantism lies. And what I'm telling you this morning, I was having a conversation with a couple of ministers in the hall out here one morning, not so many years ago, and one of them was constantly ragging me because I was reformed, as if there was something really, really bad about it. And one of the other ministers that was just as Arminian as he was looked at him and said, you know what, my understanding of history is that all Protestants used to believe these things. And what I wanted to say, you see, there's the truth. 
You look at me and you judge me, but you are the one that's off course. You are the one that is watered so far away from the fundamentals that sometimes I don't see much of the fundamental there. Easy believism is not in Scripture anywhere. There are churches that today will meet and they will tell people that if you don't speak in tongues and you really haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ. Tongue speaking is seen as a sign of real conversion. Until you have that, then you don't really believe. You might think you do and you may claim that you do, but you don't. You have to speak in tongues. There are pastors that basically have this philosophy about their job, and that is this, is the scriptures are too difficult for the average person, so what you need to do is you need to listen to me, and I will teach you what they say. No. As hard as it is to believe that there are actually ministers that discourage their people from reading and studying the Bible on their own. Exactly the approach that the Pharisees and the Sadducees The Pharisees and Sadducees believed it was their job to study the scriptures and then to teach you what they say. That is not my job. My job is to help you do what God calls you to do. To learn. To grow. To thrive. Most of you know that I spent some time teaching at the college as an adjunct. And let me tell you, it's one of the most frustrating things I ever did in my life. And you've heard it. You've heard people talking about that they're, you know, certain people are using the education system to indoctrinate people. And let me tell you something. It is true as the day is long. It's not a fantasy. Young people today are being fed what certain people wanted to know and, and the things they don't want them to know is, are purposely withheld from them. Now, I've done some frustrating things in my life and let me tell you that was one of the most frustrating things I ever did was try to teach college level young people the things that I learned when I was in third and fourth grade. I'm serious as the day is long. Our education system as it is today, and there are exceptions to it, is an absolute failure as far as real solid education goes.
And very often you would find people, that the, the people who are teaching to be some of the last people you would want to be teaching other people. I know of situations where in secular classes where there have been Christian brothers and sisters that, that have come to me and spoken with me about it later on where they were crucified in front of the class because of their faith in Christ. sad. Scripture is like nothing else. We need to feed upon it. We need to contemplate it. Sadly, it is not incomprehensible that there could be some pastor church leaders today who essentially want their congregation to be biblically illiterate. Because that makes it very easy to take people by their nose and lead them wherever you want to take them. Jesus was not only teaching, but he was giving signs that validated his teaching. You know, one of the things we have to always remember is that Jesus was teaching the things of God, but Jesus also is God. Well, I have a lot more to say, <laughs> but I just want to encourage all of us, and, and you need to understand that when I preach, I'm talking to myself more than I'm talking to anybody else. Please don't ever think that I hold myself to one standard and you to a different standard and that sort of thing. Reality is we all need to be about, about our Father's business and everything that we do and everything that we say, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To preach Jesus in our life as much as conceivably possible. <laughs>